Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's another big day for the January 6th committee. It appears that the focus today is going to be on how Donald Trump, both personally and through his surrogates, tried to intervene in the individual states to get them to flip their, their votes, their electoral college votes, from uh, from. Biden to Trump, and in particular in Georgia and Arizona. Now, they were doing this in seven states. They only had to flip two, and uh, uh, those two would, would have been the ones, the, the, because Georgia and Arizona have enough uh, electoral college votes that it would have flipped the election to Trump. So we're going to hear from Republicans. Again, every single one of these hearings has been Republicans testifying. I don't recall having heard a single Democrat testify so far. Perhaps I'm wrong, and perhaps there has been one, but I, I, I don't think so. And we're going to hear from a couple of Republicans. First of all, we're going to hear from Secretary of State, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsenperger, who just survived a primary challenge by Jody Heiss, an outgoing member of the House of Representatives, you know, a member of the so-called Freedom Caucus, the Cokehead, I call them the Cokehead Caucus, uh, you know, the guys who are taking piles of money from all of the organizations and, and groups affiliated with this right-wing billionaire network. Not to say that Raffsenperger himself isn't similarly affiliated. And his chief operating officer, uh, Gabe Sterling. And, uh, of course, this is probably going to center around the phone call that Donald Trump made to Raffsenperger saying, we need you, please to find a little over 11,000 votes so that you know we can flip the election toward, toward me, toward Trump. And I'm guessing that uh, Gabe Sterling, Gabriel Sterling is gonna talk about that. The, the more interesting one though, I think is going to be the Speaker of the House for the state of Arizona. His name is Rusty Bowers and he is the only Republican Literally, the only Republican that we will we'll have heard from, we've, you know, we've heard from uh, Republican after Republican after Republican now over the last couple of weeks in these hearings and, you know, showing up on TV shows and, and, and putting things on the record. We've heard all these kinds of Republicans say, oh, yeah, it was terrible what Trump was doing. And I told him it was illegal. And we were all worried that he was going to end the Constitution and bring down the country and, you know, stuff like this. But none of them at the time 
publicly tried to tell America what was going on. None of them. Zero. Not one single person who has testified so far. Not Bill Barr. Uh, not Bill Stepien. Uh, not, none of them. Except for the guy who's going to testify today. Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the House for the state of Arizona. And way back in, in November... Rusty Bowers issued a press release saying that Rudy Giuliani had called him, and this was in November, right after the election, and urged him to have the state legislature put forward an alternate slate of electors. Now, the Constitution says, you know, in the part that describes the Electoral College, says that the state shall determine who the electors are and which electors are sent to uh, Congress. Every state, however, has since passed laws saying that the state will send the electors to Congress who reflect whoever got the majority of votes in the state. So the law in Arizona required the state legislature to certify and forward to the Congress in Washington, D.C., a slate of electors that would have been for Joe Biden. The law required that. But because the Constitution says it's up to the state legislature to pick you know, the, the electoral college votes, Trump and Eastman and these guys, they thought that they could go to the individual states and say, you don't have to follow your own state law. And in some, in some cases, this is part of the state's constitution. I don't recall if that's the case for either Arizona or Georgia, but both of them have laws on the books saying that whoever gets the most vote, that's who the state must send the electors for. I think Rusty Bowers is probably going to be the most fascinating guy, or at least the one that deserves the most applause, because he literally, after he got this phone call from Rudy Giuliani, he literally issued a press release saying that the Trump campaign is trying to get me to break the law and throw out the Biden electors and send, submit a, a slate of Trump electors. He blew the whistle. And the guy's a Republican. We might hear about the fact that Jenny Thomas was corresponding with John Eastman and was sending emails to people in Arizona, apparently, and in fact, Bowers received one of these emails was sending emails to the state legislators in Arizona saying, throw out the election, throw out the Biden electors, vote for Trump, you know, send Trump electors. And her husband sits on the Supreme Court, which, you know, you could interpret as signaling that the Supreme Court was prepared to say, okay, cool, just like they did in 2000. In 2000, the down in Florida, the election came down to about 500 votes, and the state Supreme Court ordered a recount of every vote in the state, which we now know, because the recount was actually done a year later by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, and Gannett, would have given Florida to Al Gore. But the Bush campaign sued before the Supreme Court, saying that if the recount continued, it would cause irreparable harm to George W. Bush. And Scalia even quoted that, excuse me, Rehnquist even quoted that in the decision in Bush v. Gore. 
They said, yes, we agree. It would harm George Bush. And so we're going to stop the recount. And they stopped that recount, which is why George W. Bush became president. The Supreme Court did it. So they've already changed one presidential election. Uh, with Clarence Thomas's help, by the way. I believe we may also be hearing from uh, Ruby Freeman and uh, Shea Moss, these two election workers down in Georgia. Now, they may be the first two Democrats to testify, but they, they were forced into hiding. Uh, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were running around the country with video of them simply processing votes, doing, what they're, doing their job. But they are black and they are women. And so these white men were going, ha ha, see that? Black women handling votes. It's got to be a crime. Shea Moss has actually sued. She sued uh, One America News, and she has uh, reached a settlement with them. We don't know the details. And she continues to be suing Rudy Giuliani for basically turning her life upside down. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Good afternoon. At our last hearing, the hearings are beginning now, and here's Benny Thompson. He's speaking, but I'm not, I'm not sure why. To pressure former Vice President Mike Pence to illegally overturn the election results, we showed that when the pressure campaign failed and Mike Pence fulfilled his constitutional obligation, Donald Trump turned a violent mob loose on him. We showed that the mob came within roughly 40 feet of the vice president. Today, we'll show that what happened to Mike Pence wasn't an isolated part of Donald Trump's scheme to overturn the election. In fact, pressuring public servants into betraying their oaths was a fundamental part of the playbook. And a handful of election officials in several key states stood between Donald Trump and the upending of American democracy. As we began today, it's important to remember when we count the votes for president, we count the votes state by state. For the most part, the candidates who win the popular vote 
in a state wins all the state's electoral college votes. And whoever wins a majority of the electoral college votes wins the presidency. So when Donald Trump tried to overturn the election results, he focused on just a few states. He wanted officials at the local and state level to say the vote was tainted by widespread fraud and throw out the results. Even though, as we showed last week, there wasn't any voter fraud that could have overturned the election results. And like Mike Pence, these public servants wouldn't go along with Donald Trump's scheme. And when they wouldn't embrace the big lie and substitute the will of the voters with Donald Trump's will to remain in power, Donald Trump worked to ensure they'd face the consequences. Threats to people's livelihood and lives. Threats of violence that Donald Trump knew about and amplified. My distinguished colleague from California, Mr. Schiff, will present much of the select committee's finding on this matter. First, I'm pleased to recognize our vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, for any opening statement she'd care to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Today, we will begin examining President Trump's effort to overturn the election by exerting pressure on state officials and state legislatures. Donald Trump had a direct and personal role in this effort, as did Rudy Giuliani, as did John Eastman. In other words, the same people who were attempting to pressure Vice President Mike Pence to reject electoral votes illegally were also simultaneously working to reverse the outcome of the 2020 election at the state level. Each of these efforts to overturn the election is independently serious. Each deserves attention both by Congress and by our Department of Justice. But as a federal court has already indicated, these efforts were also part of a broader plan. And all of this was done in preparation for January 6th. I would note two points for particular focus today. First, today you will hear about calls made by President Trump to officials of Georgia and other states. As you listen to these tapes, keep in mind what Donald Trump already knew at the time he was making those calls. He had been told over and over again that his stolen election allegations were nonsense. For example, this is what former Attorney General Bill Barr said to President Trump about allegations in Georgia. We took a look, a hard look at this ourselves, and based on our uh, review of it, including the interviews of the key witnesses, uh, the Fulton County uh, allegations were had no merit. The, the, the ballots under the table uh, were legitimate ba ballots. They weren't in a suitcase. They had been pre-opened for eventually feeding into the machine. All the stuff about the water leak and that there was some subterfuge involved. We felt there was some confusion, but but there was no evidence of a subterfuge to create an opportunity to feed things into the count. And uh, so we didn't see any evidence of, of uh, fraud in, in, the, in the Fulton County episode. And Acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue told Donald Trump this. And I said something to the effect of, sir, we've done dozens of investigations, hundreds of interviews, 
The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. Mr. Trump was told by his own advisors that he had no basis for his stolen election claims. Yet he continued to pressure state officials to change the election results. Second, you will hear about a number of threats and efforts to pressure state officials to reverse the election outcome. One more point. I would urge all of those watching today to focus on the evidence the committee will present. Don't be distracted by politics. This is serious. We cannot let America become a nation of conspiracy theories and thug violence. Finally, I want to thank our witnesses today for all of your service to our country. Today, all of America will hear about the selfless actions of these men and women who acted honorably to uphold the law, protect our freedom, and preserve our Constitution. Today, Mr. Chairman, we will all see an example of what truly makes America great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Without objection, the chair recognizes the gentleman from California, Mr. Schiff, for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Madam Vice Chair. On November 3rd, 2020, Donald Trump ran for re-election to the office of the presidency, and he lost. His opponent, Joe Biden, finished ahead in the key battleground states of Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and elsewhere. Nevertheless, and for the first time in history, the losing presidential candidate fought to hold on to power. As we have seen in previous hearings, he did so through a variety of means. On election day, he sought to stop the counting of the vote, knowing that the millions of absentee ballots elections officials would be counting on election day and thereafter would run strongly against him and deliver a victory to Joe Biden. Next, and when he could not stop the counting, he tried to stop state legislatures and governors from certifying the results of the election. He went to court and filed dozens of frivolous lawsuits, making unsubstantiated claims of fraud. When that too failed, he mounted a pressure campaign directed at individual state legislators to try to get them to go back into session and either declare him the winner, decertify Joe Biden as the winner, or send two slates of electors to Congress one for Biden and one for him, and pressure Vice President Pence to choose him as the winner. But the state legislatures wouldn't go along with this scheme, and neither would the Vice President. None of the legislatures agreed to go back into special session and declare him the winner. No legitimate state authority in the states Donald Trump lost would agree to appoint fake Trump electors and send them to Congress. But this didn't stop the Trump campaign either. They assembled groups of individuals in key battleground states and got them to call themselves electors, created phony certificates associated with these fake electors, and then transmitted these certificates to Washington and to the Congress to be counted during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. None of this worked. But according to Federal District Judge David Carter, Former President Trump and others likely violated multiple federal laws by engaging in this scheme, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. You will hear evidence of the former president and his top advisors' direct involvement in key elements of this plot, or what Judge Carter called a coup in search of a legal theory. For as the judge explained, 
President Trump's pressure campaign to stop the electoral count did not end with Vice President Pence. It targeted every tier of federal and state elected officials. Convincing state legislatures, he said, to certify competing electors was essential to stop the count and ensure President Trump's reelection. As we have seen in our prior hearings, running through this scheme was a big lie that the election was plagued with massive fraud and somehow stolen. You'll remember what pres the president's own attorney general, Bill Barr, said he told the president about these claims of massive fraud affecting the outcome of the election. And uh, I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. The president's lie was and is a dangerous cancer on the body politic. If you can convince Americans that they cannot trust their own elections, that any time they lose it is somehow illegitimate, then what is left but violence to determine who should govern? This brings us to the focus of today's hearing. When state elections officials refused to stop the count, Donald Trump and his campaign tried to put pressure on them. When state executive officials refused to certify him the winner of states he lost, he applied more pressure. When state legislators refused to go back into session and appoint Trump electors, he amped up the pressure yet again. Anyone who got in the way of Donald Trump's continued hold on power after he lost the election was the subject of a dangerous and escalating campaign of pressure. This pressure campaign brought angry phone calls and texts, armed protests, intimidation, and all too often threats of violence and death. State legislators were singled out. So too were statewide elections officials. Even local elections workers, diligently doing their jobs, were accused of being criminals and had their lives turned upside down. As we will show, the president's supporters heard the former president's claims of fraud and the false allegations he made against state and local officials as a call to action. You're the threat to free and honest elections. America! And then about 45 minutes later, we started to hear the noises outside my home. And that's my stomach sunk. And I thought, it's me. And, they're, and, and then it's just, we don't know what's going to, I mean, the uncertainty of that was what was the fear. Like, are they coming with guns? Are they going to attack my house? I'm in here with my kid. You know, it's, I'm trying to put him to bed. And so it was, um, that, that was the scariest moment, just not knowing what was going to happen. This pressure campaign against state and local officials spanned numerous contested states as you will see in this video produced by the Select Committee. My name is Josh Roselman. I'm an investigative counsel for the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Beginning in late November 2020, the president and his lawyers started appearing before state legislators, urging them to give their electoral votes to Trump, even though he lost the popular vote. 
I represent uh, President Trump along with Jenna Ellis. And um, this is our fourth or fifth hearing. This election has to be turned around because uh, we won Pennsylvania by a lot and we won all of these swing states by a lot. This was a strategy with both practical and legal elements. The Select Committee has obtained an email from just two days after the election in which a Trump campaign lawyer named Cleta Mitchell asked another Trump lawyer, John Eastman, to write a memo justifying the idea. When do you remember this coming up as an option in the post-election period for the first time? Right after the election. It might have been before the election. Eastman prepared a memo attempting to justify this strategy, which was circulated to the Trump White House, Rudy Giuliani's legal team, and state legislators around the country. And he appeared before the Georgia state legislature to advocate for it publicly. You could also do what the Florida legislature was prepared to do, which is to adopt a slate of electors yourselves. Um, and when you add in the mix of the significant statistical anomalies and sworn affidavits and video evidence of outright election fraud, I don't think it's just your authority to do that. But quite frankly, I think you have a duty to do that, to protect uh, the, the integrity of, of the election uh, here in Georgia. But Republican officials in several states released public statements recognizing that President Trump's proposal was unlawful. For instance, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp called the proposal unconstitutional while Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers wrote that the idea would undermine the rule of law. The pressure campaign to get state legislators to go along with the scheme intensified when President Trump invited delegations from Michigan and Pennsylvania to the White House. Uh, either you or Speaker Chatfield, did you make the point to the president that you were not going to do anything that violated Michigan law? I believe we did. Uh, whether or not it was the, those exact words or not, but we're, I think that the words that that uh, I would have more likely used is we were going to follow the law. Nevertheless, the pressure continued. The next day, President Trump tweeted, quote, hopefully the courts and or legislatures will have the courage to do what has to be done to maintain the integrity of our elections and the United States of America itself. The world is watching. He posted multiple messages on Facebook, listing the contact information for state officials and urging his supporters to contact them to, quote, demand a vote on decertification. In one of those posts, President Trump disclosed Mike Shirky's personal phone number to his millions of followers. All I remember is receiving over just shy of 4,000 text messages over a short period of time calling to take action. It was a loud noise loud, consistent cadence of, you know, we hear that the, that, uh, the uh, Trump uh, folks are calling and asking for changes in the electors and you guys can do this. Well, you know, they were, they were believing things that were untrue. The state pressure campaign and the danger it posed to state officials and the state capitals around the nation was a dangerous precursor to the violence we saw on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Today you will hear from Rusty Bowers, the Republican Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives. He will tell us about his conversations with the President, with Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, and what the President's team asked of him, and how his oath of office would not permit it. You will then hear from Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, who Trump directed to, quote, find 11,780 votes that did not exist 
but just the exact number of votes needed to overtake Joe Biden. You will also hear from Gabriel Sterling, the chief operating officer, his chief operating officer, about the spurious claims of fraud in the elections in Georgia, and who, responding to a cascading set of threats to his elections team, warned the president to stop, that someone was going to get killed. And you will hear from Wandrea Shea Moss, a former local elections worker in Fulton County, Georgia, about how all of the lies about the election impacted the lives of real people who administer our elections and still do. You will hear what they experienced when the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States, sought to cling to power after being voted out of office by the American people. The system held, but barely. And the system held because people of courage, Republicans and Democrats, like the witnesses you will hear today, put their oath of, to the country and Constitution above any other consideration. They did their jobs as we must do ours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're talking about the hearings and our thoughts on uh, what we saw and our interpretation and understanding of it all. Julius in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Julius, what's on your mind today? The speaker a while ago said something that really intrigued me, and I had to call you. When he said he took an oath, and he was doing his best to uphold his oath. Now, that's something that's not been said about Donald Trump. He took an oath. And he has ripped that oath from shred into shreds. He, he's not held it up. Not one day did he hold that oath. Why are they not getting on to him? And if, if that oath means nothing, and it seems like it doesn't mean anything in this situation, then why do we even go through that procedure? Yeah, this is Donald Trump who's been through three wives, who's... Uh... Uh, you know, in, in each case, he made an oath who's been sued thousands of times by businesses saying that he refused to pay them. Um, uh, people that he made a commitment to, he signed contracts with. I get what you're saying, Julius, but I don't think any serious person could believe that Donald Trump actually keeps his word on, on pretty much anything. I know he, I listened to the book, audio book with Mary Trump. That was a very interesting book. Mm -hmm. And I've listened to a lot of yours that way while I'm traveling around the city. But when you take that oath at that level, there's got to be some sort of accountability held for that oath. Yeah. And apparently our nation is not holding, holding him accountable for anything. I agree. And, and it's, it's quite clear that Rusty Bowers, the, the uh, Arizona State Speaker of the House, 
took that oath seriously, you know, when, when, uh, and probably the so help me God part of it, you know, because he's a, a clearly a very, very religious guy and, and, you know, guides his life with that. So it's not surprising that he would say no because he, he felt so strongly about the oath. And I think you're absolutely right that the oath is really kind of the key to the whole thing. Um, so, uh, uh, Julius, thanks a lot for the call. Looks like the uh, hearings are, are about to restart. So, uh, Let's see if there's... After his own attorney general warned him that the claims you are about to hear are patently false. They should find those votes. They should absolutely find that. Just over 11,000 votes, that's all we need. They defrauded us out of a win in Georgia. And we're not going to forget it. So the state of Georgia is where we will turn our attention to next. I want to emphasize that our investigation into these issues is still ongoing. As I stated in our last hearing, if you have relevant information or documentary evidence to share with the select committee, we welcome your cooperation. But we will share some of our findings with you today. Secretary Rassenberger, Thank you for being here today. You've been a public servant in Georgia since 2015, serving first as a member of the Georgia House of Representatives, and then since January 2019 as Georgia's Secretary of State. As a self-described conservative Republican, it is, is it fair to say that you wanted President Trump to win the 2020 election? Yes, it is. Mr. Secretary, many witnesses have told the select committee that election day, November 3rd, 2020, was a largely uneventful day in their home states. In spite of the challenges of conducting an election during a pandemic, you wrote in the Washington Post that the election was, quote, successful. Tell us, what was your impression of how election day had proceeded in Georgia? On election day in November, our election went remarkably smooth. In fact, uh, we meet at the GEMA headquarters, that's the Georgia Energy um, uh, Emergency Management Association uh, meeting location, but we were following wait times in line. In the afternoon, our average wait time was three minutes statewide that we were recording for various precincts, and it actually got down to two minutes. And at the end of the day, we felt that we had a successful election from the standpoint of the administration and the operation of the election. Thank you. The chair recognized the gentleman from California, Mr. Schiff. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Raffensperger, did Joe Biden win the 2020 presidential election in Georgia, and by what margin? Uh, President Biden carried the state of Georgia by approximately 12,000 votes. And Mr. Secretary, as I understand it, your office took several steps to ensure the accuracy of the vote count in Georgia, reviewing the vote count in at least three different ways. These steps included a machine recount, a forensic audit, and a full hand recount of every one of the five million ballots cast. Did these efforts, including a recount of literally every ballot cast in the state of Georgia, confirm the result? Yes, they did. We counted the ballots where the first tabulation would be scanned. Then when we did our 100% hand audit of the entire, all five million ballots in the state of Georgia, all cast in place, all absentee ballots, they were all hand recounted and they came remarkably close to the first count. And then upon the election being certified, President Trump, because he was in, within half percent 
excuse me, could ask for a recount, and then we recounted them again through the scanners, and we got remarkably the same count. Three counts, all remarkably close, which showed that President Trump did come up short. Nevertheless, uh, as you will see, the President and his allies began making, began making numerous false allegations of voter fraud, uh, false allegations that you and Mr. Sterling, among others, had to address. Mr. Sterling, uh, thank you also for being here today. Following the 2020 election, in addition to your normal duties, I understand that you became a spokesperson to try to combat disinformation about the election and the danger it was creating for elections officials, among others. In a December 1 press conference, you addressed some of your remarks directly to President Trump. Let's take a look at what you said that day. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. You have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. I, I, it's not right. Mr. Sterling, what prompted you to make these remarks? Mr. Schiff, we had had a previously scheduled press conference that day, as we were in the habit of doing, trying to be as transparent as we could about the election and the counts going on. Um, a little after lunch that day, uh, lunchtime, I received a call from the project manager from Dominion Voting Systems, who was oddly, audibly shaken. She's not the kind of person I would assume would be that way. She has a master's from MIT, a graduate of the Naval Academy, and is very much on the ball and pretty unflappable. And she informed me about a, a young contractor they had who had been receiving threats um, from a, a video had been posted by some QAnon supporters. And at that point, we had been sort of been steeping in this kind of stuff. So we were, it was around us all the time. So I, I didn't take note of it more than adding to the pile of other stuff we were having to deal with. And I did pull up Twitter and I scrolled through it and I saw the young man's name. It was a particular tweet that for lack of a better word, it was a straw that broke the camel's back. Um, had the young man's name. It was a very unique name. I believe it was a first-generation American. And it said, had his name. You committed treason. May God have mercy on your soul with a slowly twisting gif of a noose. And for lack of a better word, I lost it. I just got irate. Um, my boss was with me at the time, the Deputy Secretary, Jordan Fuchs. And she could tell that I was angry. I've turning, I tend to turn red from here up when that happens, and that happened at that time. And she called Secretary Raffensperger to say, we're seeing these kind of threats, and Gabe thinks we need to say something about it. And the Secretary said yes, and that's what prompted me to do what I did. I lost my temper, but it seemed necessary at the time because it was just getting worse. And I, don't, I could not tell you why that particular one was the one that put me over the edge, but it did. Now, after you made this plea to the president, did Donald Trump urge his supporters to avoid the use of violence? Not to my knowledge. Now, as we know, the president was aware of your speech because he tweeted about it later that day. Let's take a look at what the president said. In the tweet, Donald Trump claims that there was, quote, massive voter fraud in Georgia. Uh, Mr. Sterling, that was just plain false, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Nevertheless, the very next day, on December 2nd, President Trump released a lengthy video again making false claims of election fraud in Georgia. 
Let's take a look at what he said this time. They found thousands and thousands of votes that were out of whack, all against me. In fact, the day after Donald Trump released that video, so now we're talking just two days after the emotional warning that you gave that someone's going to get killed, representatives of President Trump appeared in Georgia, including Rudy Giuliani, and launched a new conspiracy theory that would take on a life of its own and threaten the lives of several innocent election workers. This story falsely alleges that sometime during election night, election workers at the State Farm Arena in Atlanta, Georgia, kicked out poll observers. After the observers left, the story goes, these workers pulled so-called suitcases of ballots from under a table and ran those ballots through counting machines multiple times. Completely without evidence, President Trump and his allies claimed that these suitcases contained as many as 18,000 ballots, all for Joe Biden. None of this was true. But Rudy Giuliani appeared before the Georgia State Senate and played a surveillance video from State Farm Arena, falsely claiming that it showed this conspiracy taking place. Here's a sample of what Mr. Giuliani had to say during that hearing. And when you look at what you saw on the video, which to me was a smoking gun, powerful smoking gun, well, I don't, don't have to be a genius to figure out what happened. And I, I don't have to be a genius to figure out that those votes are not legitimate votes. You don't put legitimate votes under a table. No. Wait until you throw the opposition out and in the middle of the night count them. We would have to be fools to think that. President Trump's campaign amplified Giuliani's false testimony in a tweet pushing out the video footage. Giuliani likewise pushed out his testimony on social media. As you can see in this tweet, Mr. Giuliani wrote that it was, quote, now beyond doubt, unquote, that Fulton County Democrats had stolen the election. Later in this hearing, we'll hear directly from one of the election workers in this video about the effect these lies had on her and on her family. Mr. Sterling, did the investigators in your office review the entire surveillance tape from the State Farm Arena on election night? Uh, they actually reviewed approximately 48 hours going over the time period where action was taking place at the um, counting center at State Farm Arena. And what did the tape actually show? Depending on which time you want to start, because as was mentioned, this conspiracy theory took on a life of its own, um, where they conflated a water main break that wasn't a water main break, and throwing observers out, and a series of other things. What it actually showed was Fulton County election workers engaging in normal ballot processing. Um, one of the specific things, one of the things that was very frustrating was the so-called suitcases of ballots from under the table. If you watch the entirety of the video, you saw that these were election workers who were under the impression they were going to get to go home around 10, 10.30. People are putting on their coats. They're putting ballots that are prepared to be scanned into ballot carriers that are then sealed with tamper-proof seals so that you, they can, you know they're not messed with. Um, and the, it's an interesting thing because you watch all, there's four screens of the video, and as you're watching it, you can see the election monitors in the corner with the press as they're taking these ballot carriers and putting them under the, under the table. You see it there. Um, one of the other hidden ones, if you looked at the actual tape, was on the outside of the table just from the camera angle. You couldn't see it originally. And this goes under the no good deed goes unpunished. We were told, that we were at GEMA, as the secretary pointed out, 
and we were, under the, we were told that it looked like they were shutting down the Fulton County counting. The secretary expressed some displeasure at that because we wanted to everybody keep counting so we could get to the results and know what was, what was happening. So our elections director called their elections director who was at another location because this was election day. There was two different places where ballot things were being done by the Fulton County office. Um, so he called the elections director of Fulton, then called Ralph Jones, who was at the State Farm Arena and said, what the heck are you doing? Go ahead and stay. And as you watch the video itself, you see him take the phone call as people are putting things away and getting ready to leave. And you can tell for about 15, 20 seconds, he does not want to tell these people they have to stay. He walks over, he thinks about it for a second, you see him come back to the corner of a desk and kind of slumps his shoulders and says, okay, y'all, we gotta keep on counting. And then you see him take their coats off, get the ballots out. And then a secondary thing that you'll see on there is you'll have people who are counting ballots who a batch will go through, they will take them off and run that through again. What happens there is a standard operating procedure that if there is a misscan, if there's a misalignment, if it doesn't read right, these are high speed, high capacity scanners. So three or four will go through after a misscan. You have to delete that batch and put it back through again. And by going through the hand tally, as the secretary pointed out, we showed that if there had been multiple ballots scanned without a you know, corresponding physical ballot, your counts would have been a lot higher than the ballots themselves. And by doing the hand tally, we saw two specific numbers that were met. The hand tally got us to a 0.1053% off of the total votes cast and 0.0099% on the margin, which is essentially dead on accurate. Um, most academic studies say on a hand tally you'll have between one and two percent, but because we use ballot marking devices where it's very clear what the voter intended, it made it a lot easier to us force to conduct that hand count and show that none of that was true. Now I understand that uh, um, when you reviewed these tapes uh, and did the analysis, uh, it disproved this cons conspiracy theory. Um, but you still had to take a lot of steps to try to make sure the public knew the truth about these allegations. Uh, and you did frequent uh, briefings for the press. Let's take a look at one of those press briefings, uh, Mr. Sterling, that you held on December 7th uh, to make the point that you just did today. Move on to what I'm gonna call Disinformation Monday. It's out of the gate. Um, many of y'all saw the videotape from State Farm Arena. I spent hours with our post-certified investigators, uh, Justin Gray from WSB, spent hours with us going over this video to explain to people that what you saw, the secret suitcases of magic ballots, were actually ballots that had been packed into those uh, absentee ballot carriers by the workers in plain view of the monitors and the press. And what's really frustrating is the president's attorneys had this same videotape. They saw the exact same things the rest of us could see, and they chose to mislead state senators and the public about what was on that video. Um, I'm quite sure that they will not characterize the video if they try to enter into evidence, because that is the kind of thing that could lead to sanctions, because it's obviously untrue. They knew it was untrue, and they continue to do things like this. Mr. Sterling, despite the efforts by your office to combat this misinformation by speaking out publicly and through local media, you were unable to match the reach of President Trump's platform and social media megaphone spreading these false conspiracy theories. What was it like to compete with a president who had the biggest bully pulpit in the world to push out these false claims? For lack of a better word, it was frustrating. But oftentimes I felt our information was getting out, but that there was a reticence 
of people who needed to believe it, to believe it because the President of the United States, who many looked up to and respected, was telling them it wasn't true. Despite the facts, and I have characterized at one point it was kind of like a shovel trying to empty the ocean. And yes, it was frustrating. I even have you know, family members who I had to argue with about some of these things. And I would show them things. And the problem you have is you're getting to people's hearts. I remember there's one specific, an attorney, that we know that we showed and walked him through. This wasn't true. OK, I get that. This wasn't true. OK, I get that. This wasn't five or six things. But at the end, he goes, I just know in my heart they cheated. That's just, and so once you get past the heart, the facts don't matter as much. And our job, from our point of view, is to get the facts out, do our job, tell the truth, follow the Constitution, follow the law, and defend the institutions, and the institutions held. Let's take a look at what you were competing with. This is former, the former president speaking in Georgia on December 5th. Evidence of fraud is overwhelming, and again, I'm going to ask you to look up at that very, very powerful and very expensive screen. Hidden cases of possible ballots are rolled out from under a table. Four people under a cloud of suspicion. So, if you just take the crime of what those Democrat workers were doing, and by the way, there was no water main break. You know, they said there, there was no water main break. That's ten times more than I need to win this state, 10 times more. It's 10 times, maybe more than that, but it's 10 times more because we lost by a very close number. In this committee's hearing last Monday, we heard from senior federal law enforcement officials, um, from the senior most uh, federal law enforcement official in Atlanta at the time, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District, B.J. Pack, as well as former Attorney General Bill Barr. They both testified that the allegations were thoroughly investigated and found to have no merit. Here is U.S. Attorney Pack. They go to Attorney General Barr. I told them that we looked into it. We've done uh, several things, including uh, interviewing the witnesses. I listened to the, the tapes and reviewed the uh, videotape myself, and that um, there was nothing there. Um, Giuliani was wrong in representing that this was a uh, suitcase full of ballots. And here's what Attorney General Bill Barr had to say about the same allegations. Took a look, a hard look at this ourselves. And based on our uh, review of it, including the interviews of the key witnesses, uh, the Fulton County uh, allegations were, had no merit. We also have testimony from senior Department of Justice officials establishing that they specifically told President Trump that these allegations had been thoroughly investigated and were completely without merit. Here is Acting Attorney, uh, Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue describing a phone conversation in which he specifically told President Trump that these allegations were false. President kept fixating on this suitcase that supposedly had fraudulent ballots and that the suitcase was rolled out from under the table. And I said, no, sir, there is no suitcase. You can watch that video over and over. There is no suitcase. There is a wheeled bin where they carry. Where they carry the ballots. No matter how many times senior Department of Justice officials, including his own attorney general, told the president that these allegations were not true, President Trump kept promoting these lies and putting pressure on state officials to accept them. 
On January 2nd, the President had a lengthy telephone conversation with Secretary Raffensperger. Prior to the President's call, though, I want to share a bit of important context. First, the White House, including the former President's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, repeatedly called or texted the Secretary's office some 18 times in order to set up this call. They were quite persistent. Second, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows took the extraordinary step of showing up at a signature audit site in Georgia, where he met with Secretary Raffensperger's chief investigator, Francis Watson, who was supervising that audit process. Behind me is a photograph from that visit. Third, the day after Meadows' Georgia visit, he set up a call between President Trump and Francis Watson. On the call between President Trump and Georgia investigator Francis Watson, the former president continued to push the false claim that he'd won the state of Georgia. Let's listen to that part of the conversation. You know, it's just, you have the most important job in the country right now, because if we win Georgia, first of all, if we win, you're gonna have two wins. You're not, they're not gonna win right now, you know, they're down. Because the people of Georgia are so angry at what happened to me, they know I won, won by hundreds of thousands of votes, it wasn't close. And in this next clip, he told the state law enforcement official that she'd be praised if she found the right answer. Hopefully, uh, you know, I will, when, when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. I mean, I don't know why, you know, they, they made it so hard. They, they will be praised. People will say, great, because that's what it's about, that ability to check and to, and to make it right. Because everyone knows it's wrong. There's just no way. Mr. Raffensperger, I know you weren't on this call, but, uh, but that you have listened to it. President Trump didn't win by hundreds of thousands of votes in Georgia, did he? No, he did not. Uh, I've been traveling through the state of Georgia for a year now, and uh, simply put, in a nutshell, what happened in fall of 2020 is that 28,000 Georgians skipped the presidential race, and yet they voted down ballot in other races. And the Republican congressman ended up getting 33,000 more votes than President Trump. And that's why President Trump came up short. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, the president uh, on this call doesn't stop here. Uh, let's listen to another part of the conversation between President Trump and Ms. Watson. Anyway, but whatever you can do, Francis, it would be uh, it's a great thing. It's an important thing for the country. It's so important. You have no idea it's so important. Well, Mr. And I very much appreciate it. Whatever you can do, Francis. This is the president of the United States calling an investigator, looking into the election in which he is a candidate, and asking her to do whatever you can do. Mr. Secretary, he placed this call to your chief investigator on September 23rd, 2020. The select committee has received text messages indicating that Mark Meadows wanted to send some of the investigators in her office, in the words of one White House aide, a shitload of POTUS stuff, including coins, actual autographed MAGA hats, etc. White House staff intervened to make sure that didn't happen. It was clear at the time of this call that the former president had his sights set on January 6th. Listen to this portion when he told Francis Watson about a very important date. Do you think they'll be working after Christmas to keep it going fast? Because, you know, we have that date of the 6th, which is a very important date. 
That important date, of course, was the joint session of Congress, where Georgia's electoral votes would be counted for Joe Biden. A little, a little over a week after this call to Francis Watson, the President was finally able to speak with you, Secretary Raffensperger. Bear in mind, as we discuss this call today, that by this point in time, early January, the election in Georgia had already been certified. But perhaps more important, the President of the United States had already been told repeatedly by his own top Justice Department officials that the claims he was about to make to you about massive fraud in Georgia were completely false. Mr. Secretary, the call between you and the President lasted 67 minutes, over an hour. We obviously can't listen to the entire Adam Schiff, the Congressman from California, was interviewing uh, Brad Raffsenperger, the uh, Secretary of State of Georgia, who had laid out just, you know, a whole bunch of really important things, including, uh, in fact, they're, they're preparing, I think, basically, the testimony that uh, Ruby and her daughter are going to give. Uh, these so-called suitcases of ballots and all this other nonsense were just nonsense. We will get back to it as soon as uh, Nate can reconnect. Ah, there, I think we've got it. Here we go. Oh, and, and we're coming back from this break, too. Here we go. We're back to the hearings. Thousand ballots somehow smuggled in all for Biden. I take it, uh, gentlemen, that that was also categorically false? There's no, A, there's no physical way he could know who those ballots were for, but secondarily, we had... Fulton County for years has been an issue in our state when it comes to elections. So we had they had a very difficult time during the primary, in large part because of COVID. So we had put them under a consent decree. The secretary got negotiated where we had a monitor um, on site. And his name is Carter Jones. And he took a notation. He had gone from State Farm to the English Street Warehouse to look at election day activities. But before he left the State Farm Arena, he noted how many ballots had been counted on each one of the machines. And when he came back after we found out they were working again, he, he took note again when they closed. And I believe the final number was something around 8,900 total ballots were scanned from the time he left to the time about 1230 or 1 o'clock in the morning. So way below 18,000. Uh, let's play the next clip. I heard it was close. I said, there's no way. But they dropped a lot of votes in there late at night. You know that, Brett. Mr. Secretary, did somebody drop, drop a lot of votes there late at night? No. Uh, I believe that the president was referring to some of the counties when they would upload, but the ballots had all been accepted and had to be accepted by state law by 7 p.m. So there were no additional ballots accepted after 7 p.m. Let's play the next clip in which uh, the president makes claims about so-called dead voters. The other thing, uh, dead people, so dead people voted, and I think uh, the, the number is in the pro uh, close to 5,000 people. And they went to uh, obituaries, they went to uh, all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number, and a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters. So, Secretary, did your office investigate whether those allegations were accurate? Did 5,000 dead people uh, in Georgia vote? Uh, no, it's not accurate. And actually, in their lawsuits, they allege 10,315 dead people. Uh, we found two dead people when I wrote my letter to Congress that stated January 6th. And subsequent to that, we found two more. That's one, two, three, four people, not 4,000, but just a total of four, not 10,000, not 5,000. Let's play the next clip. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, 
that you've recalculated because uh, the 2,236 and absentee ballots, I mean, they're, they're all exact numbers that were, were done by accounting firms, law firms, etc. And even if you cut them in half, cut them in half, and cut them in half again, it's more votes than we need. Mr. Secretary, is there any way that you could have lawfully changed the result in the state of Georgia and somehow explained it away as a recalculation? No, the numbers are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. We had many allegations, and we investigated every single one of them. In fact, I challenged my team, did we miss anything? They said that there was over 66,000 underage voters. We found that there was actually zero. You can register to vote in Georgia. When you're 17 and a half, you have to be 18 by election day. We checked that out, every single voter. They said that there was 2,423 non-registered voters. There was zero. They said that there was 2,056 felons. We identified less than 74 or less that were actually still on felony sentence. Every single allegation we checked, we ran down the rabbit trail to make sure that our numbers were accurate. So there's no way you could have recalculated it except uh, by fudging the numbers? The numbers were the numbers, and we could not recalculate because we had made sure that we had checked every single allegation. And we had many investigations. We had nearly 300 from the 2020 election. Mr. Secretary, you tried to push back when the president made these unsupported claims, whether they we'll were We'll be back tomorrow, same time, ballots. same place, doing a deep dive into what was said today and uh, more of the news of the day. So. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.